Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 worldwide has hit over 1 million. The U.S. has the highest number of cases, followed by Italy, Spain, and Germany. But that metric does little for us in the way of tracking how fast it is spreading due to uneven testing, especially here in the United States. Instead, some suggest that we track the rate of hospitalizations and other factors. For more on why we still need a lot more data to find out the true rates of infection and spread, we'll speak to Faye Flam columnist at Bloomberg News. I was in touch with some epidemiologists and statisticians and people that are really trying to get a handle on these numbers. And the numbers of confirmed cases, which are the ones that everybody's obsessed with, are kind of a mix uh, that's hard to sort out of increases in the numbers of people who actually are infected and the number of people who are getting tests. The actual number of infected people is unknown at this point and won't be knowable until we can do different kinds of testing. But The death rate is a real number, but that is lagging behind. So what we're trying to do is figure out, well, how many more people are likely to die and how do we keep more people from dying? So one of the things people are hoping to get better handle on is the number of people that enter the hospital, that that's a really meaningful number because it can give us a lot of information about how this pandemic is growing. And you look at places like China, obviously, where this kind of started, they have a population of 1.5 billion people. They have about 80,000 cases. And that just seems so small compared to the amount of people. And we know there's a lot of people that don't have the same type of symptoms, not as severe symptoms. So there's people that could have had it. It was a minor cold for them and never got tested, never went to a hospital. So it's hard to go with the confirmed cases for anything like that. So beyond hospitalizations and death rates, what else could we be looking at? One of the things that may happen, we may be able to do random sampling, which has been done in a couple of places. It was done in a small town in Italy where you just get a random group of people that are perfectly healthy. You just take a sample and then test everybody. And then you can see how widespread the virus is. Another thing that we should be able to do fairly soon is antibody testing. And that's really important because it tells you the number of people that have been infected. So the antibodies don't show up right away, but they stay with you afterwards. So we can find out how far this has actually already been spreading. There are some people who think it's likely that well before the first confirmed cases showed up here, there may have been people that weren't particularly sick that just showed up here and the disease was already spreading quietly well before those first cases showed up in January. There's constantly things being written up about this. And there was somebody that was kind of saying, could that December cough have been some of this? And the real fact is that we just don't know at this point. We kind of have to get well beyond this so we can look at all the data that we've gathered and really put the picture together. The other thing that a lot of people keep talking about are age and pre-existing conditions. We know that The most vulnerable group is older people, but it might not necessarily just be just because they're old. It really looks like it has a lot more to do with these pre-existing conditions. I talked to Stanford epidemiologist Steve Goodman, who has been taking a very close look at this. And what he told me was, you know, once you get 
the, the data by age and by pre-existing conditions, then you can start to tease apart these things because a lot of the pre-existing conditions that seem to put people at higher risk are things that also increase with age. But age might not be the relevant thing. It might be the pre-existing conditions or what we really need to keep our eye on. And that would mean the people that really need to be careful and the people we need to protect are a little different from the people we thought. And he has since gotten some data. I actually talked with him since the story ran and he said that it confirms what he suspected, that the pre-existing conditions are the more important factor here. So with all of this, I mean, it's tough. We want to know how this is happening. And with the way the news cycle is and everything, we're getting so much all the time. Every day, there's some type of new thing that we're either learning about the virus itself or how it's been traveling. It's really tough to kind of comprehend all of that. And the unfortunate part is that we're going through it right now. So we won't be able to know until at least we hit the peak of cases here in the United States, maybe, so we can start looking back at some of the data. And that's really the stuff that we're going to have to pay attention to. We won't know if all of these lockdowns and social distancing are that effective until after we at least hit the peaks of this thing. I think that we have to be patient, though. I also feel optimistic that our country's scientists are going to make a lot of progress in the next two or three weeks in understanding what we have on our hands. The right now, Steve Goodman said it was like building an airplane in the air, that it feels a little like we're just in the dark. But they are gathering data and they are trying to understand all of these facets of this disease. And I think once they start to get a handle on it, we'll have a more focused strategy for moving forward. Faye Flam, science journalist and opinion columnist at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. As COVID-19 testing capabilities ramp up and companies are coming up with new tests, there's still a big question. Why does it take so long to get results? First, it's a multi-step process. Once a sample is taken, it needs to travel to a lab, then it needs to be processed. And different circumstances and processing will lead to different turnaround times. For more on the steps involved in testing and how new tests are on the way, we'll speak to Julie Appleby, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. It does take a long time, as we've seen. People are being told, you know, you have to wait five or six or seven days in some cases to get a test. So why is that? So let's back up a little bit. We had some problems initially when the first CDC test came out. Those were resolved. More and more labs now have approval to run these tests and uh, larger labs and hospital labs, et cetera, et cetera. And as you mentioned, we're starting to see some quicker tests, but it still takes some time. There's a number of steps in the process. Like first you get your nose swabbed, right, with one of these things. Then they put that swab in a little tube and they send it off to the lab. And the lab then has to do some pretty sophisticated analysis of the sample, right, to figure out do you have COVID or not. And, and, that, and real quick, that's the first step, actually getting swabbed and then sending it to a lab. That could take up to right. a day depending on where the lab is, how far it is from where you got tested. That's correct. So you got to think about transit time. There's about a day lag there. Now, there are some places that are doing testing on site. So if you're at a large academic medical center, chances are they might have their own testing capability at that center, but they're probably limiting the testing to inpatients and to their hospital staff. So the reason they can get a result back a little quicker there is because they just do it in-house, so they don't have that transit time. But even when they do it in-house, there's a bunch of steps that have to be done. 
they have to put them in a machine generally. There's, have, there's some manual work that the t- technician does. They have to they extract some RNA and amplify the DNA. And there's all this sciencey kind of stuff. Some of it's done manually, but a lot of places, these big commercial labs have these machines that run them automatically. So they're faster. They can process more samples at a time. In a piece I wrote, I talked to a pathology lab at MedStar Medical Center in Georgetown here in, in Washington, D.C., and they can run 93 samples at a time in their machine and they can run about three of those cycles a day, okay? So that's why they do it in-house at this hospital, but they're kind of limited in the number they can do. Whereas if you go to a test site and they might send it off to a large commercial lab that's, that can process 20 or 30,000 of these a day. So that might be faster, but then you've got the transit time and they've got a big backlog. So these are all the reasons why it can take a number of days to get results back in some cases. And in other cases, you might get an answer back sooner. One of the other difficulties is that there's so many people that want to get tested. They want to have peace of mind uh, to know whether they do not have it or they want confirmation. If they're getting, if they have some type of symptoms, they want to know they have it so they can know what to do. And in a lot of these places, it's like almost a sign, like no walk-ins welcome kind of thing, because, you know, some of these sites have to, you have to follow a line, basically. Uh, you know, somebody coming off the street just can't get their test and get it done. They need to uh, prioritize these things to healthcare workers, to people that really have bad symptoms and are in ho- need hospitalization. And that's true. That's because we don't have enough tests in the United States right now. They're working on ramping that up. As you mentioned, we've, we've got some new test kits out. They're starting to go out that, that can get results back quicker. And those are expected to be sort of point of care. When you walk in your doctor's office or the emergency room, you might be able to get a result back in 5 to 13 minutes. But that just got approved, you know, Friday night. And they're, they're going to start shipping them. They're hoping to ship 50,000 of them a day. But there's a lot of people, like you mentioned, that just want that peace of mind. Or, you know, if you've got it, you really need to isolate yourself. And so it's good to know, do you have it or not? But we're not there yet. We're hearing a lot about shortages, specifically with healthcare workers, with personal protective equipment, masks, all that stuff. But these testing kits also suffer from some of those shortages, the chemical agents using those kits, the swabs to get the samples. There's a lot of things that are in short supply right now, and all of that needs to get ramped up. That's correct, and that's why some of these groups, uh, the big lab testing groups and some of those are saying, let's limit the testing right now and to these high-priority people because there are these shortages, and that's kind of backing up manufacturing in some cases. I, I spoke with a manufacturer who was you know, working on making sure he could get all the right little chemicals to put in it and, and the swabs and that kind of thing, and he has multiple suppliers, but he's on the phone working this thing to make sure that happens, and there's just a big demand for these products right now. You keep hearing it a lot. We're all in this together. We have to practice the social distancing. There's a, a bit of patience that goes into this that unfortunately a lot of people don't have because, you know, you hear scary words like pandemic and whatnot, and, and people are legitimately concerned. So, But it is kind of this patience that we have to practice with all of this as well. Right. And more and more of these are getting approved. I mean, just in the couple of days since I wrote my story, there's been a couple more tests approved under these emergency use authorizations by the FDA. So more tests are coming on the market there's another entire kind of test which tries to figure out if you have immunity, if you already had the disease, and those are going to you're going to start hearing more about those. They're not available widely here in the United States yet, but other countries are working on that, uh, getting folks tested to figure out, hey, maybe it's safe for you to go back to work. You've had the disease. You presumably have immunity now. Julie Appleby, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Another big question going around during this coronavirus pandemic 
is how effective masks are and should we all be wearing them? The CDC is considering recommendations for people to wear face masks while out in public. Previously, the recommendations were not to buy any masks because medical workers needed them and they were in very short supply. But we've gotten to the point where we need to step up the efforts to help stop the spread of coronavirus. And masks might be the way. They reduce the spread of infectious disease by catching microbes expelled by the wearer and also protect them from outside microbes. And while they might not catch everything, there's a strong case that we should all be wearing masks during a pandemic. For more on this, we spoke to Ferris Jaber, writer for Wired. The official guidance from the CDC and the WHO has been that masks are not effective when it comes to the general public, that they are effective for healthcare workers, but there's not really strong evidence that they can help prevent you know, members of the general public from getting a respiratory illness. But when you really look at the evidence as a whole, I think there is pretty, pretty compelling reasons that uh, members of the general public should wear masks as well. Um, and so there's different kinds of masks that kind of get lumped together. Sometimes the N95 respirators are the the most efficient and effective, and those are the ones that are really essential for for healthcare workers who perform procedures that generate these really tiny respiratory droplets that are difficult to filter out. And for most people, that level of protection is not necessary because we're not constantly in contact with infected people the way that doctors and nurses are. And then the second level is a surgical mask, which is usually a soft pleated rectangle. And those work really well, um, too. And then uh, doctors and nurses use those all the time as well when they're not doing high-risk procedures. But unfortunately, right now, in the U.S. and many other countries, there's simply too massive a shortage of N95s and surgical masks for the public to use those. You know, any, any new ones that are produced really should be going to hospitals and healthcare workers. So the best option for everybody else right now is to make fabric masks at home. Um, and there are a few studies that have examined how well fabric masks work against against influenza and other respiratory diseases. And the answer is not as well as surgical masks or N95s, but still surprisingly well. They definitely provide some protection. And um, if, you know, there's increasing evidence that with COVID, there's a lot of people who are infected but don't realize it. They don't have noticeable symptoms. So they could be out and about on their essential tasks, buying food or medicine, spreading the virus without realizing it because they don't feel that anything is wrong. So if everybody puts on a mask, that could powerfully reduce the risk of of transmitting the virus. And, and that's exactly why the guidelines might be changing. It's for these people that are asymptomatic that could be spreading it and not knowing it. Most of these droplets, these respiratory droplets that get uh, thrown out there, uh, it happens when you're talking, but mostly when you're coughing or sneezing is when they're going to be traveling distances that could be uh, uh, dangerous to people. You were talking about some studies that were done on different types of masks and, and, and alternatives. Uh, there was one that came out in 2013 where scientists compared the filtration efficiency of the surgical mask to linens, uh, a silk scarf, a kitchen towel, vacuum cleaner bags. Tell us how that one turned out. Yeah, that's an interesting study which has been cited a lot because they really looked at quite a wide variety of homemade materials, you know, household materials a lot of people would have access to. And um, the vacuum cleaner bag turned out to be the second best after the surgical mask because it is so dense and tightly right. woven. But the problem is that it's really uncomfortable to wear a vacuum cleaner bag over your face for a long period of time. I just so they ended up um, favoring I the uh, cotton t-shirt and the um, kitchen towel, because those are both fairly dense, but still breathable and still comfortable. They have some elasticity to them. 
And they really they really thought that a, a homemade mask made out of a cotton T-shirt was the best option. Um, I, I recently heard someone doing something kind of clever. So certain certain homemade fabric masks that you can buy on Etsy or that people are making in their communities have a pocket in them. And some people will buy a manufactured filter. It's just sort of like a little pad that you slip into that pocket. But somebody said that they put a vacuum cleaner bag or part of one inside that pocket, which I think is, is a pretty good idea. It's worth trying. As long as you can breathe through it, that's okay. You know, you, you don't want to impede your breathing too much, but you want to get something that's that's pretty tight and dense to be able to block out those particles. I, when I saw that part of that study, I mean, I immediately chuckled a little bit because I remember the big vacuum bags from when I was a kid, you know, having to do chores. And it's like, I would mean, have to put a whole bag on my head right. for this to work. But okay, so the question is, uh, you know, these N95s and these surgical masks, they have filters in them. If uh, people need to make one at home, you know, out of a t-shirt, claw, other claws, whatever, what should they be doing for that filter? So the filter that's used in N95s and surgical masks is, is a really special kind of material. It's usually called melt-blown fabric or, or spun fabric, and it's basically cotton candy plastic. It's, you know, it's extremely tiny filaments of plastic and it's produced by machines that cost millions of dollars to construct and they're massive, massive machines. So it's really difficult to replicate that kind of material exactly. Still okay though to just have cotton or just have a towel over your face because the the idea really is to catch the brunt of a cough or a sneeze. You know, there's there's all these large globs of mucus that are visible that you're going to catch and stop, and those all contain virus in them and as well. So you don't you don't only have to prevent the really tiny particles with a with a special manufactured filter. But some people, you know, will um, try to find these. Uh, sort of filter replacements that are meant to be slipped inside fabric masks. Um, they're, you know, they were, I think they're more common in Asia than they are in the West, but they are sort of out there and some people will find them online. But that, I don't, you know, that's really not necessary. I think it, for most people, it's it's okay just to have one or two layers of cotton or another another suitable material. Early on, they said, hey, don't buy the masks because medical professionals need them and you're not going to wear it right either. And you're going to be touching your face but we've gotten to this point where we really want to stem the flow of this spread. And at this point, anything helps, uh, you know, just as you mentioned, you know, even wearing some the cotton T-shirt is going to catch at least the biggest parts of a cough or a sneeze. And so this is the point that we're at. And, and this is why these recommendations might be changing. That's right. And and it's a good point to bring up the use of masks because it, it does make a big difference in how effective they are. And, you know, there there are some basic guidelines to follow just as there are, you know, with hand washing. It's it's really not that difficult to learn. I think the most important thing is to remember is that when you should you really have to treat the mask like something that is very sterile and sanitized so when when you before you put it on wash your hands once you have it on your face go out and do whatever you have to do and do not touch the mask don't fidget with it don't take it off for anything just leave it alone uh, when you come back home remove the mask by the strings or the ear loops do not touch the front piece which has probably caught microbes in it and then immediately sanitize that by putting it into a hot wash if it's a fabric mask or if you've made a disposable paper mask just throw it away immediately and that those are really the the basic steps you need to know to make sure that you're not accidentally contaminating yourself with a mask ferris jaber writer for wired thank you very much for joining us thank you don't forget to join us on social media at daily dive pod on twitter and daily dive podcast on facebook 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.